Balkans. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life I'm thrilled to welcome Lindy Fishburn to the show. We are big on early stage deep science startup experts here at Lab Rats to Unicorns, and we are particularly proud to welcome this rock star in the field. So welcome, Lindy. Lindy is the managing partner of Breakout Ventures, where she is fresh off $113 million fund close, second fund close, I should mention, and the founder of Breakout Labs, the seed stage program for hard science at the Teal Foundation. For the last several years, she has been investing at the intersection of technology and biology. She's also a board member of both Cytovale and Phylogen, and her influence on the life sciences startup universe is widening, or let me rephrase, she is changing the process for this genre of startup culture. Her funding approach and philanthropic endeavors are contributing to the democratization of science. From the educational perspective, uh, Lindy has her MBA from the University of Texas and did her undergrad work at Duke University. So thank you so much again, Lindy, for joining the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about what you all have been working on. Well, this episode is designed to further investigate your life, your goals, your inspirations, and the personality behind what we see, your decisions and your broad impact. And again, you know, for our listeners, they know it's a pretty wild and exciting conversation and educational at the same time. So, you know, maybe we'll jump right in and you know, Lindy, you did your undergrad at Duke and then you picked up your MBA at Texas. What fueled your interest in science? You know, I, I would love to say that this was a, a straight line story. I actually do not have academic credentials in science. So I have an MBA and an undergrad in cultural and physical anthropology. I basically backed into supporting and investing in science when I saw the opportunity post-2008 financial crisis. Um, a lot of early stage financing vanished and was super excited about Web 2.0 at the time. And yet simultaneously, you had biology becoming more of a data science after the Human Genome Project published. You had this whole biohacker movement going on of quantified self. And so I was starting to see the inklings of where technology and tools of scale that were built and paid for in other industries were starting to be applied in science. And yet, post-financial crisis, you had this huge pullback of capital that would take technical risk, that would take scientific risk. And I had always been, have always been interested in new models and kind of what the best could come out of taking some of the best aspects of, of nonprofit and for-profit. Um, and that led me to build what became Breakout Labs, which really was my entree into investing and supporting scientists while, while not being a scientist myself. That's really cool and inspirational at the same time. I, now, is that when you got connected to the Teal Foundation or how did, how did that come about and, and then what transpired thereafter? Was that simultaneous that you kind of came on board with the Teal Foundation and then immediately got into moving forward with, with Breakout Labs or tell us a little bit about the timeline? 
Yeah, I had the I had the opportunity to work with Peter Thiel as he was starting and launching the Thiel Foundation, and we knew that it would not be a uh, what should we say like a traditional foundation. And the charter and the question that we were really wrestling with was, you know, how do you help drive innovation? How do you help drive innovation at the edge? And with that question and kind of room to to explore. I spent a lot of time with scientists in university labs trying to understand what it would take to get things out of the lab and into the market and spent a lot of time with investors understanding what what they need to see back then because the market looked very different. This is 10 years ago than it does now, what they needed to see to write checks. And after researching and really digging in on both sides of that equation, came back to the Teal Foundation and proposed that we launched what became Breakout Labs, which was really a revolving fund within the foundation that allowed us to seed fund early stage deep tech companies and basically take them through that early scientific or technical risk and really help connect them with the community such that when and if things were working, they were in a flow of, of information and investors and supporters so that they could find that next check to keep advancing. Very interesting. And then from that, not to get you know too far out ahead here, but did that open up then the need in your mind to kind of evolve further toward the venture model? Or how did Breakout Ventures come about and what was its relationship to uh, Breakout Labs? You know, I would imagine that, you know, as you were getting these companies up and going and more through the philanthropic grant making model, but it sounds to me like you're putting kind of a venture lens to those, even those grants, because you're connecting those prospective hard science opportunities in front of the market, whether it's customers or downstream funders. Were you finding then that there were opportunities that were being created that you could follow along with these where you needed to develop a little bit more of a conventional venture fund approach or how did that all transpire? Yeah, I think whenever anybody is trying to use philanthropic dollars, which in theory can be more flexible, whether it's with a longer time horizon, whether they're willing to take additional technical risk or market risk, one of the challenges you always have is you don't want to place a bunch of seeds because the philanthropic dollars had a, a certain profile and then your seeds can't grow because you were too far away from the market. And so we were very cautious in um, evaluating breakout labs companies, not that we got it right all the time, but to try to find the line of, you know, when was it still a science project and when was it science connected with a team that with some early capital in had a reasonably good shot at hitting a relevant technical milestone such that that next set of investors would be willing to pick them up and come on. It was also a bet at the time, if you think 2010, as to what was the curve of market interest and adoption going to be, what type of success cases and proof points were going to get out there that attracted investors to this intersection of technology and biology. Some of that was life science investors turning and looking at new models that were different than just, you know, let's advance an asset stepwise through a therapeutics process. Some of that was tech investors saying, I understand the tools, I understand the data, you know, now I can actually get involved with things that are science or biology based even if I'm not coming at this from a life science background. And so we were also, 
I guess, betting on and cheering for and riding the wave of increasing adoption and interest from investors at this intersection. And so we ended up on the Breakout Lab side funding 50 companies from around the country. I think we were also really clear that you know, all the best ideas and all the best science don't happen to be sitting in San Francisco or Boston, and that we wanted to shine a light on different labs, different companies that were all across the country, and help then be that connection so that they could connect into different ecosystems, connect into different pools of capital, which I actually think turned out to work really well. And of those 50 companies, my gosh, at different times, you know, we've probably had 30 of them now go on to raise Series A, Series B or beyond. We've had one IPO. And so they were really starting to track um, and they were attracting north of a billion dollars in follow on capital and grant funding after our first, you know, relatively small checks, three to 500,000. And so in 2016, we actually took our team and rolled out of the Teal Foundation and raised Breakout Ventures, our first fund, as an opportunity to not only continue to follow on in some breakout companies that we knew better than anybody else and had initially seeded, but also begin to invest in the earlier stages as the market evolved. And so then in 2019, we effectively retired the Breakout Labs model of leveraging philanthropy for those early days because at certain points, I think when philanthropy attacks a problem, then it's really great to be able to declare success and move on and philanthropy should go attack the next problem. You can't make the same argument now that you could make in 2010 about the difficulty in finding that first early money or connecting in with a supportive, interested entrepreneurial ecosystem. Like the world is flourishing in all the ways that we'd hoped and cheered for. It's certainly not perfect. And the you know funding isn't always allocated you know, sort of equally or fairly, but it is much more accessible. That's really cool. And I mean, I share your enthusiasm around the flourishing of the ecosystem, if you will, for innovation. And, you know, I kind of watched firsthand, you know, in my role at the Polsky Center for the University of Chicago, the efforts that we were going to attract, you know, this new type of faculty member this innovator that was more applied in nature, that was very interested and cognizant of and aware of inventing for the sake of impact. And impact in their definition kind of moved beyond publishing, you know, in in, uh, journals like Science and Nature, but taking it one step further, you know, creating a company and then bringing that product in in the case of a biomedical innovation to to patients and watching. I I think the, yeah, I mean, I think the shift in, tech transfer offices and university culture around embracing commercialization as a successful, impactful outcome for scientific development, that can't be understated how substantial that change in the last 10 years is. When we first started, we were in hand-to-hand combat with tech transfer offices and the policies they had around professors engaging with startups, how they could spend their time, conflict of interest. It was murky to, you know, uh, very aggressively anti-commercialization and and companies. And that shift has been 
radical and very influential. And now I think you have an entire generation of PhDs, postdocs, who never intended to stay in university. Yeah. And we didn't have that 20 yes. years ago. Correct. Yeah. No, it, it, absolutely. I, I just think the economic model has changed for higher education and research institutions. And in many ways, it's liberating for that new talent pool that is looking for and yearning for the opportunity to apply and create impact in that fashion. Watching PhDs and postdocs that, you know, in, in years past, it would have been frowned upon to kind of move outside the walls of academia, that the true pure path would be to move on and become a professor. That certainly can be an attractive pathway. Uh, and it's still happening. But this embracing by the university, by the institution, by the deans, if you will, recognizing that commercialization, dare I say, is its own scholarly activity. You know, it requires its own type of expertise and skill that ultimately, you know, can have the same type of impact of breakthrough new basic science you know, impacting, you know, applied science in areas where you're meeting unmet needs. So, yeah, couldn't agree more. It's exciting to watch. And just to your point, I just, oh my God. the world has changed pretty dramatically from that 2010 yeah, time frame to we, where we are today. And when we first started, <laughs> we were very much championing scientists as entrepreneur, which was really somewhat sort of heretical at the time. Everybody would, yeah. you know, investors would look and say, that's great. I see the science. I see the scientists. You know, where's the business person that's supposed to run this thing? And, and we were cheering for and championing that there would be certain scientists that were capable of also being very talented entrepreneurs and team builders that with their passion and how close they were to the science and the technology, that they were the right person, the right team to take that forward. And I think that's another conversation that's changed radically in the last 10 years. And there's a a lot of belief and a lot of interest in scientists as entrepreneur. I think I have concerns now that sometimes we've turned the dial too far and we're telling every scientist they should be an entrepreneur. And yeah. I think the gating factor really is at times, one, you know, personality and their strengths and kind of where their strengths are best leveraged, but also not every scientific breakthrough makes a standalone company. And, and so I think universities are, are titrating on when is it an idea that should be formed as a company and move forward? When is it an interesting scientific breakthrough that's a part of things? I'm not sure we get that you know, right all the time, yeah. but the flow there and the interest there is is really exciting. Yeah, and I think getting close to the market as early as possible keeps that endeavor more true and honest with regards to what technology should be a company, what is really more of a research or, or scientific project, like you said. And, you know, kind of going back to your points around this evolution, I always noticed early on in that arc, 2000, 2010, et cetera, there was a tendency to work in isolation as an academician around the world-class science that was being conducted. But if the goal was to commercialize something, there was not necessarily a connection to the marketplace. And it seems to me that that will be the recipe for success going forward too, to make sure that these universities are very connected, whether with teams on the staff or with partnerships with outside market participants to really you know, take a hard look at and, and being a market voice around should this uh, idea be something that we patent and move forward and commercialize. Definitely. I, I mean, I think the shift that's gone along with that 
has been the development and the the maturity to some degree of these corporate venture capital groups. So that market is also flourishing, much more active, and often the corporates or the strategics are the ones that can pick up and engage with some of those earlier projects or tools in particular, and their funding and their market knowledge has proven to be really critical to companies in that space in a way that, again, 10 years ago when we started to engage with corporates, they were throwing up innovation groups that weren't really empowered, didn't have standalone funding, you know, weren't aligned with the BUs, and they weren't very effective. And now you're seeing a much more holistic, integrated approach to working with startup and younger companies that makes that really mutually beneficial. So if we take a little bit of a deeper dive on breakout ventures, I'd like to hear a little bit more about maybe where you're focused on in terms of what you're investing in, maybe a couple of example portfolio companies. But before we go too deep in that regard, you know, you just raised $113 million uh, in your second fund. Can you, in COVID, no less, right? I mean, (laughs) tell us about that journey and, you know, maybe you could share kind of one of your more exciting moments in that journey. And if you wouldn't mind, you know, making it real and talking about some of the low points on that journey as well. Yes, it was a very busy year last year. My managing partner in Partner in Crime, Julia Moore, and I set out last January to raise our second fund as a follow-up to our initial fund that had been $60 million. And we kept assuming that we would be able to get on a plane and meet people in person and We did not know that if, and I don't think the market knew, if more traditional bigger allocators would allocate two funds, two GPs that they had not met in person. And so I'll try as we would, nobody would (laughs) would take a meeting in person last year. Um, And we kept offering to come to New York and everybody on the Zoom was sitting in the Hamptons or Hawaii or They were definitely not sitting in Manhattan, so we didn't get to go. Uh, I think we had a tremendous start because we had such strong support from our Fund 1 LPs, which I think is a big part of the secret of how funds grow and raises, you know, get easier and more rational, is that if you've delivered in your first fund and your thesis and approach to the market and the team is getting stronger, then Uh, hopefully it's a very easy decision for your prior LPs to re-up. And I think uh, lots of LPs take an approach of maybe a smaller check first time round and then sizing up in that second, third time. So that was a very strong start with really good renewal support and larger commitments from current LPs. And, And I think the market traction that was gaining in the background as we were talking about our expertise in what we think of as creative biosciences. And that's kind of our wrapper for this intersection of biology, technology, and chemistry with the biggest implications in human health and sustainability. And so as we're talking about fund one companies and how they've performed and what we're looking at in fund two, I think you had a number of companies like a Ginkgo having their IPO and the market starting to see for the first time in the public markets what this new category of company can look like that's really building and driven and designing with biology that is different than what we think of as traditional life sciences. And that market is still emerging. You know, we've been engaged in what bankers cover 
companies in that space because they don't fit into just sort of traditional categories. Uh, but that the opportunity for a future built with biology, we found was resonating with new LPs and investors who, when they were looking at their allocations, could see how their allocation in traditional life sciences, their allocation in tech, was missing this new bucket of creative biosciences of a future built with biology. I'd say the nomenclature is still being kind of hashed out here. And I think to some degree, we're ending up with tech bio versus biotech. And so we had great success with new LPs understanding the opportunity there and seeing how that basically balances other allocations. So that was exciting. Um, We've worked with phenomenal connectors that were champions for what we're doing. And, you know, I would say every one of our current investors connected us or brought us into one or two new investors. So that's really exciting. It's amazing. Um, It fundamentally comes down to a lot of Zooms (laughs) um, and a lot of follow-ups. But we had great support from our entrepreneurs that often served as references and would help explain the opportunity and I think also really explain how what we do and provide at Breakout goes far beyond the dollars. You know, to some degree, dollars are pretty fungible right now. And so I think your best entrepreneurs are being very savvy as to whose dollars they are, what comes with those dollars, and what do they Who's the right partner? It's more of a partner approach. And I think that, that LPs are very savvy in a very busy, crowded market of understanding what does a firm need to do or provide or have with that reputation beyond just the dollars. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Can you share any challenging moments along the way? I mean, not the least of which is just, know. you know, doing this remotely and, and all that goes with, you know, conducting these Zoom calls. It's difficult to understand body language in, in a Zoom call. So, I mean, it just, the odds are stacked against you. So, I mean, Maybe that's enough to say that was the adversity that you overcame. (laughs) But was there anything along the way? I mean, I just, in my own journeys, you know, there's, there's always kind of, I, I, I like to say that, you know, there's, there's a LinkedIn profile, which kind of lists the high point in the journey, but you know, every one of those high points was probably in-betweens, you know, what were the in-betweens and on that fundraise, did you come out of a, an LP meeting, for example, feeling kind of down and wondering, you know, what, what's oh. going to happen? Just curious. A lot, lots of those, particularly, <laughs> particularly on Zoom. I think all the GPs last year would say there's times where we thought that not traveling and doing it on Zoom was somehow going to be really much more efficient. I'm sure, you know, our families thought that too. I think the challenge that we're all experiencing with Zoom meetings also is to some degree the bar is lower. So I think you have potentially more or less qualified meetings Interesting. Yeah. than mm-hmm. if you had to get an entire group of people in a conference room in Boston. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a higher bar and a more qualified gathering. Yeah. Uh, so that's always hard to judge on uh, with the Zoom intro uptake as to how qualified it is. It certainly loses the excitement that comes in success <laughs> when a new partner says yes. Yeah. I think the other thing you find when you're raising a fund in you know, a, a relatively new space, a space that's being defined still, and to us, that's a good thing. I think the challenge then in the market is you do spend a good cycle educating potential LPs who are really excited about the next fund. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. they need a cycle of education and exposure. 
And so hopefully in, you know, two years or so, (laughs) we'll find that that education worked for us and worked for them. But I do think that there's a lot of LP learning and interest going on and trying to understand what this new market and building with biology looks like and how they should think about allocating there. And there's a learning curve. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And and I think just even, you know, in so many ways, you're creating a new category. Yep. I mean, and that's difficult to do because you're trying to, like you said, describe creative biosciences. You're creating some new words for the dictionary in the eyes of a market or uh, LPs in this case that are, are good at recognizing patterns and understanding certain profiles. So, I mean, hats off to you in defining that new category and, and owning that category. It'll be interesting to see how that continues to develop. Would you mind describing a couple of your portfolio companies that are in your first fund or second fund, just to give the audience a flavor for the types of companies that you're backing? Of course. I think that I spend the majority of our of my day, and I think our whole team does, really repping our portfolio companies. So we could talk about that all day long. I think that one of the biggest values that VCs add is that they should be you know, the champion and, and a bit of the mouthpiece for their companies. So if you think about it, we do early seed stage checks when companies are, you know, maybe that's the first 500,000 million five when the company has something. It may be a proof of concept, but it's still very early on. So we're investing in a company right now that is out of New York City called Canary. And the easiest way to think about it is that they're hacking the dog's sense of smell. And so we have looked for years for the different approaches that are being used to basically turn olfaction, so our fifth sense, to make it digital and make it available in a computational way, like we've done verbally, we've done with visual, we've done auditorily, and we have not been able to do with scent. And so over the years, we've looked at some really clever but fairly convoluted and complicated attempts at this. And this company is just so elegant in their solution, but basically recognizing rats and dogs have incredible senses of smell. And rather than trying to replicate that, how about if we put a tiny chip in their olfactory bulb and basically train a federated learning model such that we start to learn and are able to read what they're smelling. So that opens up huge markets in everything from you know, diagnostic potential in a very passive way to biodefense and biosecurity. And so rather than when you see one dog right now trained on a particular scent and you've got one dog, one scent, here you could have, you know, your friendly Labradoodle that can also, um, you're reading everything that they are smelling that you're interested in without having to train the dog. So the scalability there is really exciting. So that's, that's fascinating. Super cool. That's fascinating. You know, what category does that fall in? You know, it's anybody's guess. So that's creative, why. That's creative biosciences. That's exactly. What I would say. If, we, if we've <laughs> ever heard it. Yeah, no, that's really cool. But again, I mean, just first and foremost, it's physics, material science, and traditional biology, you know, all in in one shot. That to me is what you're defining and funding and, and investing in. Was there any particular feature beyond the technology and its application that stood out to you? Again, even for the benefit of the audience, um, aspiring entrepreneurs, what you're looking for in teams, for example, yeah. at that stage of development. 
So Dana Watt, our principal, who's a PhD in neuroscience, was the one who found the company and initially interacted with them. And I think the caliber of the scientist, the work that they've done at NYU and across a couple different universities in New York, really meant that from a scientific technical heft, there's a lot there versus kind of the design on a napkin. Hey, if we could ever do this, it's interesting. And then in that university setting, they had done enough of that early proof of concept that you could kind of get your head around it. Yeah. There's still a lot we got to figure out. Of course. But then I think the balance there is a CEO and a team who is, to our earlier conversation, very articulate and focused on figuring out what is the best use case of this technology. Hmm. So very quickly, it has to go from kind of cocktail party, cool and interesting to a market and a customer and revenue and that use case. And we've been impressed with this team's, I guess, acknowledgement of that, (laughs) the the focus on understanding. And so they've got some early proof of concept partnerships in a variety of markets that's helping them get smarter about that use case and form factor and helping us then be able to see their commitment and understanding of what's it going to take to commercialize and actually build a business versus just building, you know, a really cool kind of out there science project. Yep. Yeah. No, very, very interesting. Well, I mean, maybe switching gears a little bit and just talking about some of your guideposts as you've been able to achieve the levels of success that you have in your career. You know, it's fascinating to me, not only what you're embarking on, but your journey to here. Who are some of your role models or mentors, people that have kind of gone before you that you've tried to model yourself or have been inspired by, you know, in, in your particular pathway? Yeah, it's so interesting. I would I would love to say I saw a person X do this and I thought I want to do something like that. I think the driver for me has always been curiosity and what's interesting and where are things potentially broken in a way that they open up an opportunity. So I've referred to myself at times before as, you know, the accidental VC in the sense that I didn't grow up or go through grad school thinking, oh, I I want a job in finance and I want to become a venture capitalist. I became a venture capitalist because there's this amazing set of entrepreneurs and breakthroughs that I think need to get out into the world. And I was up for exploring what are the best models to make that happen And so that took me from an initial background in nonprofit all the way through to venture as the model needed to evolve to get the capital in the right place at the right time. And so I look at, you know, inspiration from our scientists daily that are pushing the bounds of what's possible and driven by personal stories or curiosity and the boldness of angel investors and venture investors to take that risk when it always looks easy in hindsight to be like, oh, of course that was a winner. But I assure you in the early days, none of that is ever as obvious as it looks in retrospect. That's what strikes me, you know, in in that your overview there as as really exciting is your risk-taking appetite. And in so many ways, you know, your inspiration probably spans, uh, like you said, the scientists that you interacted with, other folks along the way in different kind of verticals. But in so many ways, you have been inventing new models. And so 
finding an inspiration, you know, that has done that before, there are none, right? So I think that's pretty interesting and inspiring in and of itself. Do you find that there are certain people that you would consider kind of the team in the dugout that, you know, as you're up there and you come back, that you can kind of rely on uh, for counsel as you're making decisions as you move forward? And maybe even without even naming names, I'm thinking more about, you know, audience members that know it's a a lonely journey and maybe are in that pathway where they themselves are creating a market or creating a new product and there aren't necessarily role models per se, but people that you can go to, and maybe it's your partner that allows you to keep going. Maybe it's your family. I'm just curious about what keeps you going. I think it is always, as we all know, these things are deeply personal and risk-taking and the ability to take risk and the great success and the painful failures that come with that are very, very, very real. And they don't always come at the (laughs) the right time or in the right ratios. And so for me, my husband, who is a deeply creative person and a, a writer, and so he is always putting himself out there and getting feedback after delivering, you know, the most personal of, of beings in terms of, of writing and stories is my champion and first reader, first investor in everything. And I think our commitment around risk-taking and curiosity then makes it safer to do those things. So I do think that support system is really important and having business partners that you trust and that you're aligned with and that you know, you know, our success is everybody in the firm's success, our failures are everybody in the firm's. You know, we don't live in a world of attribution. We don't say, you know, that was Lindy's deal. That was Julia's deal. I mean, this, it's, it's got to be a team effort. And then it's shared. And we're all learning along the way in a way that's pretty compelling. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. Are there various habits and practices that you utilize to keep yourself grounded in the midst of the very busy workload that you have and the kind of fast-paced moving environment with a lot of different things coming your way? I'm sure I should say like I exercise every day and I eat vegetables and all of those things. Um, (laughs) I I would try to do some of that. I think for me, it's also pulling up with time with friends and time with family. But also whenever we think we are super busy or super important or, you know, whatever's happening, spending time with entrepreneurs that are in the lab, in the in the hot seat, whether they're fundraising or working on the edge of a breakthrough or commercialization milestone, that is the most grounding and inspiring thing that you can do. And I think it's super important that investors get out of our offices. And so like tomorrow, actually, we're spending the day in the East Bay with two different startups, one that we've invested in and spending a couple hours with that management team, really helping them think through um, next steps and then meeting a brand new company that we're looking at investing in. And we are proponents of getting off Zoom and, and getting in person. And the minute you're with those entrepreneurs, you realize that their lift compared to anything we're doing is 
so much more substantial that, you know, they're on the front lines every day. It's a big shot of energy by being exposed to that is what I hear you saying. Huge. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. And, and good perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think maybe just one corollary to that question is just any any things that you've been able to engage in outside of uh, work um, that have allowed you to kind of strike a balance or maybe even just define there is no balance. And, and that's OK, too. Just just curious about like how you think about uh, how you keep going on the trajectory that you're on and either pacing yourself or not. And your kind of definition of what, what are the things you do to uh, keep you um, reasonably balanced? I probably have some work to do on this topic, (laughs) Uh, but I do think that when you think you have the best job in the world and when what you do, it fundamentally feeds innate curiosity and you get to work with amazing people every day, I don't think you frame it in terms of of balance. It's not the drudgery aspect of work. It's that it imbues everything you're doing because you're making connections and you're with really interesting people. And we talk about the companies that we support as being really substantive in the sense that if and when they work at scale, it should really matter. And not that the food delivery app doesn't matter, like we all use it and it's really helped our lives. But when we think about substantive, it has really substantial impacts in human health or sustainability, and it's a fundamental scientific breakthrough. And I think that grounding of believing and thinking that what we're engaging in really matters certainly helps. But then for me, I'm clearly a a people person. So my family, friends, time out, walking and engaging. We get the privilege of living in the Presidio. So I live in a national park, which also helps. So we are in the middle of a city, but in the middle of a forest. And so I think that also helps with some out of the office perspective. I love it. No, that's I I really love it, Lindy. And and maybe just back to the field, um, one of the questions that I have for you, you know, as we think about, again, part of the purpose of this podcast is to try to invite others into our ecosystem and define that ecosystem as life sciences, biosciences, and even creative biosciences for that matter. You know, one of the questions I have is in that life sciences venture community, I think it's imperative that we're not only creating a welcoming environment for diverse talent, but to act on that and actually build diverse teams. You know, knowing that, what are your views on things we can be doing to improve diversity in all elements of of the work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really incredible time when we think about creative biosciences in the sense that you don't have to have a PhD in a particular aspect of science in order to work or be relevant in these companies or in in venture. And so when we think about this democratization of science and these tools and technologies, whether it's computation, robotics, et cetera, from other industries that are now being applied in biosciences, I think that is opening up a huge door and opportunity for folks from different backgrounds, different interests that may not have pursued XYZ science credential to actually be quite active and engaged in the space. 
And so I think that's bringing a wider array of people into these companies and ultimately into venture because venture really would love everybody to have operating experience. So I think when I look the ground level up of the diverse backgrounds and teams that are coming into these startups, that is also going to be an amazing feeder for venture longer term. And I think think there's a wider recognition as to the different types of talent that are out there. And as two female GPs, (laughs) it's not a surprise that we funded more female CEOs than I think any other firm that we've seen that isn't focused on a gender investing lens, we're not. It just happens because that's the way networks work. So the more diversity you have across investors, you will inherently have more diverse recipients of that investing because of network theory. And so we're excited to be a small part of that. And I think you will see that shift continue to, to grow. That's great. And it's completely market driven too. the way you're describing yeah. that you know, your selection is happening, but it's a natural network that inherently is wired to invite that diversity. In this case, you know, gender diversity in a very market driven uh, approach totally. in, in so many ways as it, as which, it should be. Yeah, which is and, the only and, way I think it's going to work. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, maybe another doubling down on that same question, but more from the company perspective, we know very well that we're in this war for talent, right? I mean, it's we can't find enough talent to populate these emerging companies that have new profiles, as you've mentioned, that need different skills that maybe weren't the the, the pharma and biopharma companies of the past. And and so it creates, on one hand, a great a great opportunity, but it's a key constraint to growth, as we know. Yeah. Are there are there ideas or thoughts that you might have around more on the company side? You know, how, how do we create pathways that might be more accessible to that more diverse talent pool? You mentioned I'm the same as you. I have a business background, but I've always loved to be part of the science and and connecting to that. We think of other, you know, diversity, um, ethnic diversity and those kinds of features that open up maybe even new avenues for economic development where manufacturing, biomanufacturing becomes a, a piece of the puzzle that we're not tooled to really grow and scale in, in biotech. Any quick thoughts around ways that we could be building the talent pool around the companies that can't survive if we can't access this much broader talent pool? Yeah. Well, I think as you and I have touched on earlier, I think if we are to the point of being able to say one of the benefits of the pandemic is that geography and physical location are much less of a constraint than they were before. So I think you're going to have, we have all of our companies now are hiring talent that will be remote for the majority of the job. Nobody would have said that, particularly in some of these deeper science-based companies four or five years ago. So I think that's an enormous shift. I think you're also seeing more flexibility in work style and work schedule that also opens up opportunities. And then to me, one of the big shifts is as science and biology are producing end products or inputs that are closer to the consumer, you actually have a greater consumer awareness and interest in what was this ingredient? What was this bottle made of? Where did this straw come from? All of that, which is bringing in consumer marketing roles and and a whole new set of consumer facing aspects into biotech, which is a whole new set of jobs that didn't exist before in this industry. It's a great point. 
Very, very good point. Very interesting. And as we, you know, we're, we're winding down the conversation now, I kind of have two remaining questions, if you don't mind. I would start with one that's more futuristic in nature, and that would be, you know, is there any one key technology or maybe area of creative bioscience <laughs> that you, you see transforming uh, the way we treat patients in the next 20 to 30 years? I mean, I think the science is so much further ahead than our delivery capabilities that that may be one of the pieces that I get. Uh, generally, I'm an optimist to be in this job. I can get a little pessimistic about our delivery capabilities, but I do think, and we've made several investments in this space, and despite the challenges, because I do think it's it's early days, but I think fundamentally leveraging our body's ability or an individual's body ability to heal and reprogram and solve, whether it's with gene therapy, cell therapy, fix innate glitches, um, innate challenges that are either hereditary or arisen over time. I'm pretty optimistic on what that will look like longer term. It's going to be a bumpy road to get there, and we're not going to get it right out of the gate every time. But I think the more that we are building and working in harmony and leveraging biology, the better we get versus some of our brute force approaches in the past, which we're really fighting with our innate human biology. Yeah, no, very, I agreed and, and support your thesis and your concerns as well around delivery. So my, my final question is more of a look back. What advice do you have for your 15-year-old self? <laughs> well, I have one of those at home. Uh, and, and <laughs> Well, what would your, maybe another way to ask is, what would your 15-year-old have to say to you? And have you learned anything from your 15-year-old sure. that's I mean, helping sharpen your skills as an entrepreneur? <laughs> I think it, I really do think that it is fundamentally leaning into your curiosity and being the most, you know, what we tell our 15-year-old is, you know, be the most interesting person you can be. And that comes when you're following your curiosity and doing things that aren't on, there are no straight line trajectories into any of these roles. There are no check the box events that need to occur in a way that we might have thought about 30, 40 years ago. And we're always looking to engage with the most interesting people that have such a compelling story about why they've dug in on something compared to the person that says they you know, performed and checked the box and went along this straight line pathway, they tend to not be the most interesting folks out there. That is sage advice. And uh, I want to end by saying I thank you so much for this conversation. Incredible uh, work that you're doing. I, I'm overly impressed with what you've accomplished so far, but maybe even more importantly, where you're going. And uh, I'm optimistic about the future and how you know, your category of creative biosciences will, will transform, you know, the way that healthcare is uh, delivered well into the future. So thank you so much for the time. It's an honor and look forward to continuing to collaborate with you. Well, John, thank you for, uh, for having me, for all of your work at Portal. And we're excited about the, the early stage support that you guys are providing and look forward to working more closely on some opportunities there too. Can't wait. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratsdounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. 